Let's get rid of my camera. <laughs> yeah, as I said, uh, David, as I said to Mary this morning, I haven't done my hair and makeup this morning, so. Um... Okay, you both ready? Long. They take too long, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So let's go. This is me, PJ Stevens, with another PJ Tips podcast. Today we have two guests addressing the question of how can ethics offer competitive advantage? Welcome, please, David Blower, Executive Director, Corporate Services, Stonewater Housing Association, and the brilliant Mary Ashaw, Design Researcher and Strategist with the likes of Tesco. Listen, thanks so much um, to both of you for joining us. To, to kick us off, David, um, can you just tell us a little about Stonewater and why data and ethics matter so much? Uh, good morning, both. Uh, so Stonewater, we're a social housing business. So we are um, we were created to um, provide housing for people who are not able to meet their housing need themselves. So we've got a really wide range of customers from people who are buying what we call a shared ownership product where they're part buying, part renting through to renting their homes from us through to um, customers who have particular significant needs. And that might be people in social housing. It might be victims of domestic abuse who are fleeing domestic abuse and we're helping them rebuild their lives. So we've got a very wide range of customers and we're at, We've got around 75,000 customers at places in the top 20 in the UK in social housing. Um, data and ethics are massively important to us as a, as a social business, being, potentially dealing with some of the more vulnerable members of society. Um, having an ethical approach to our work is absolutely critical and also being seen to have an ethical approach to our work is also as important. Data is really helping us to design the businesses and focus our resources on where it really does make the most difference. The Clearly, you will see, as, as we're all dealing with the cost of living crisis, businesses are needing to do more with less, and data helps us focus our resources on those key target areas. David, thank you. And the, the purpose of Stonewater Housing Association to, you know, to, to offer everybody the opportunity for a place they can call home, I think is so important. Well, it's, it'll never be more, you know, it's, it's never been more, I think perhaps more important and uh, close to many of our hearts, particularly at this time of year, and as you just said about the the current crisis or challenges that, that families are facing. So listen, a really important matter, thank you. Mary, can I Mary, can I come to you? Um, just tell us, you've worked with many companies, so if you would give us a, an insight into some of those and perhaps just share a little bit with us, you know, to what degree can or should technology serve human needs, please? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, over the years I've, I've worked with, um, with anything ranging from new startups to, to scale-ups to large corporates, um, and everything in between, including housing associations. Um, and I guess what I've seen is that we, um, as a society, we seem to get hugely excited about the potential of what technology can do for us. Um, and we seem to get almost more excited about the technology itself. And we kind of forget that, that it still needs to serve human needs. Um, so I feel like over the years, we've, we've kind of built a lot of things that are actually taking us away from, from the need of humans to connect with each other, to trust each other, um, to be kind to each other. So I feel like um, technology is only useful if it's serving human needs, right? So it, can we, when, you know, when you say that it, it, technology needs to be kind, tell us more about that. How, how does that work in the real world? Oof. <laughs> that's that's a, 
That's a good question. Um, there's been a lot of talk recently about um, AI being um, inherent, occasionally racist, occasionally um, ableist, all of these things. There's There was a famous video going the rounds of a, of a racist soap dispenser, which would only dispense soap if your skin was a certain um, pigmentation. Um, I feel like these are things that technology shouldn't be left to decide. Um, but again, it, it starts, all of these models are only as good as what they're trained on. So I feel like there's a, a certain amount of bias that everyone has bias, but when we're maybe not accounting for that bias when we're building these things. Um, so I guess that's what I mean. It needs to be, wow. it needs to so be open and equal. Thanks, Merritt. David, have you, um, at Stonewater, have you experienced anything like that? Well, one of the things that we apply is, I mean, the government has a data ethics framework um, and what uh, one of the things that that suggests and we adopt is a, a data ethics impact assessment. So we do, so at the start of any project, we look at how, how, what sort of data are we going to be using? How are we going to be using that? And what's the implications of that? And that helps us hopefully identify any potential biases at the outset. But I think for, for us is that, um, as Mary has said, you know, as individuals, we all have biases and that's we and recognising that those biases do exist. Um, so one of the things that we try to do is make sure that we we iron them out of our systems as much as possible by making sure that uh, systems are, de are designed by in use with our, with our customers, our service users, but also a wide range of individuals so that we're getting different perspectives, but also making sure that whenever we're doing any sort of analysis where we're also looking at we aren't just following that analysis religiously. We are mm. checking that with our own um, senses and actually making sure that that actually means something. And it isn't just, you know, we, Maria talks about sort of the hideous soap dispenser dispensing it only for <laughs> certain, yeah. certain, um, I hadn't heard that story, but you can sort of see how technology had been it designed a certain way, creates a certain result. And I think you have to recognise that uh, if you're, that, at that very initial design phase, you've got to make sure that you're getting the widest possible impact to make sure that you don't, that your results aren't biased. So how, I think David, how, one of the, got... sorry, I think one of the things to, to be mindful of is that it's okay to get it wrong. I, mm. I feel like um, a lot of companies don't admit when they've made a mistake. And I, I, I don't know that that's ever been the case with Stonewater. I certainly haven't seen it, but but it is something that should be wider, um, more widely accepted, but it, it is okay to make a mistake and put your hand up and say, yep, we got it wrong. We're fixing it. This is how. And I, th and I think, Mary, also building on that, it's also okay to say we're not sure. Um, and certainly if I can think of an example, start yes, setting out the technology space, but into the EDI space, when Black Lives Matter with the tragic um, death of George Floyd, we as an organisation, we look to our colleagues of colour to help us find the, the right way to respond as a business. And that was really important. And that was really important that we listened to, to, to colleagues who, whose particular lived experience had been affected by that. And I think these situations are, it's right to, to, for organisations to reach out and say, can, you know, can you help us? You know, in the same way that we want our customers to help design the services that they're going to receive. We, we, shouldn't have, we shouldn't feel that we have all the answers. Maria, any thoughts on that? 
Um, many. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's maybe or in light of all this, it may be, you know, or everything that happens, it may be a, a good idea to just start formulating um those responses before anything happens, before you need to um need to talk to to I guess to put it short, I feel like as um it shouldn't be the responsibility of the colleagues that happen to be of a certain group to to educate the organization. I know this is controversial in some ways, but there are a lot of organizations doing a lot of really good work mm. in in different spaces mm. where um, where there is discrimination. So perhaps we should um, as organizations in general be talking more with those those advocacy groups um, mm. and trying to understand what is going on. Um, simply because they they're spending their life, they're spending their energy on creating this knowledge. So what can I can I come to David? David, um, just from what Maria said, what what does good use of tech or data mean to customers and the individuals? Because we've got you know you've got groups of people. You know you'll be in, you'll be in groups, but you'll also be an individual in that group. Mm -hmm. How mm -hmm. does Stonewall to manage that? And, and what's your view on that? Uh, what does good look like? Uh, I think that what what good looks like from a, a an ethical perspective in relation to how you can use data is that it we do use predictive analytics, but we don't we're not necessarily following them um, with, with unchecked. So we do use predictive analytics, and predictive analytics do help us identify those customers that who potentially are more likely to get into arrears. And you know, our customers will be on typically on very low incomes, and therefore some of the challenges that you know, we're all facing at the moment in relation to cost of living, they'll they'll be they will be the most adversely affected. So you know, a small increase or a small reduction in their income or a small increase in their mm. cost, they can't absorb. So we can be looking at those customers that are more likely to get into arrears. And if a customer gets into arrears with, with very little spare cash they can't they really struggle to pay that back and therefore their home is at risk and that will affect their life chances and the life chances of their family it will also increase cost to us as a business and also increase cost to society so if we can deploy ethics um, data analytics correctly we can be focusing our resources on those customers who are potentially more vulnerable getting some corrective action in place or some preventative action in place that helps keep them in their homes that helps and that will have improve, you know, hopefully um, maintain and improve their, their quality of life for their, themselves and their family. But one of the other things about uh, digital, we're, we're all joining this, this discussion remotely from our, the comfort of our, our, home, our own homes, probably. <laughs> yeah. um, and the, the re, there is a real def, digital deficit in, in society, not only from the, the skills, and there'll, there'll be some members of our society who don't have digital skills, and that will mean that they're not necessarily able to access services, and therefore uh, they're not able to live their lives as fully as they could do if they had a, access to a range of services. But also there's those individuals and families whom, um, who can only access digital services, say, through a smartphone not through a, um, a, a, a tablet device or a desktop device. And that will significantly affect their, their chances of employment, their chances um, to apply for jobs, their, their, their children's um, um, success in education. And I think there's some statistic that 
children who are not able to have access to good quality technology are likely to achieve at least one grade below that their potential. Wow. That will affect wow. their whole life chances and that will affect themselves and, the, and, and their family's life chances. So the more that, so one of the things that we're doing is making sure that not only are our, our colleagues, our customers skilled with, with technology, uh, enabled with technology skills, but they also um, have the right technology to be able to live successful lives and their families to live successful lives. David, thank you. Um, Mary, can I just come to you on, on a point um, about empathy within um, digitization and trust? You, both you and David have mentioned it, and then David just picking up on, um, you know, on education for young people. Um, Mary, yeah, tell us, how do, you, how do you develop empathy through, through the, this digital space? I feel like that's a, that's a tricky one because everyone's trying to do that empathy at scale. I think one one of the buzzwords was, um, and to be honest, you can't build trust without transparency, and and you build trust over time with a predictability of response. Mm -hmm. So, like David was saying, yes, you're identifying the people with um, with analytics and predictive modeling. But how you then communicate with them, how you help them is crucial in building that trust and, and showing that empathy. Because it, you know, if you see a person's in risk at risk of falling into arrears and you go, right, you need to do this, 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 that's not gonna make them trust you. That's going to make them scared. Um, but if you go, here, here's a here's some resources that can help you, that starts a way of bridging that sort of creating that relationship but feel like technology yes can help you identify who you need to help but it is still a very human um communicate a human communication matter to, to how you build trust from there and you also need to like like he's mentioning transparency but you also need to to be clear on what you can and can't do as an organization for them just so they're you know, so you're not potentially letting them down by promising something you can't do. So they're aware of what your limitations are and what they can expect from you. It's it's that sort of setting expectations um, and keeping promises. So I think technology is, is wonderful for helping you keep promises because it can remind you. <laughs> if you have promised the customer that you will help them with something, your technology can either do it for you if that's possible, or it can remind you to do it as a human. Wow. Mary, thank you. David, um, is there an absence of trust in, in business, in data, do you think? I think there's an absence of trust in society. Um, I think that you know, we, when you think about um, the trust equation, a bit of organizational behavior mm, theory, yeah. trust, the trust equation looks at intimacy plus credibility plus reliability, um, all reduced, all divided by self-interest. And I think that self-interest factor, so many you know, in politics, in society, generally people are thinking that that self-interest factor is so huge at the moment that people really don't don't trust don't trust organizations and don't don't trust governments and that's a real challenge for any sort of organization but the organizations that can do it well as Mary has said are those, those organizations that are very credible 
um, and very reliable. So those sort of organisations that actually do are very clear with the customer that's not that's not a service that we provide, and that's that's something that we we're having conversation with our customers. Um, with yeah, that that's you know, we understand the situation, but that isn't a service we provide, and we can signpost you to a, another service provider who will provide that service. But don't make those promises that you really cannot keep because that will erode trust. Um, and equally, when you are delivering services, make sure that you are delivering yeah. what you promised you that you delivered. So if you're if you are if and that will play to your reliability. And if and if businesses can get that reliability and credibility right, yeah, then organisations will be successful because individuals will want to go back to them because they will trust them. And equally, when organisations get things wrong, put their hands up, say sorry, and and put it right. Um, and you know we've all had situations where we've all suffered service failure and we've all and I imagine we've all probably been impressed by those organizations that have admitted the service failure and have put it right really well no I was just absolutely I, was I, I think one of the key key things that builds trust is how you react to when things go wrong because things always go wrong mm. nothing is infallible but actually you can build way more trust and gain more loyalty after something's gone wrong if you show how you deal with it really openly mm. no I, agreed i was just i'm um, david when you were just talking i was just smiling there was a um of oh course a, a chap i worked for i can't remember now I'll, I'll say 10 years ago it's one of those sort of periods and um he was uh, due to an unusual set of circumstances coming out of sort of 2007 8 9 got into a bit of trouble and was unable to pay uh, a number of um, invoices that i had with him but he was on the phone straight away. It says, I'm going to get, I'm, I basically, I will go bust on Monday. I will not be able to pay your, your bills. But if you leave it with me, you know, for maybe, you know, sort of six, eight, 12 months, I will make good on that. And um, he made good on his promise. And 10 years later, you know, we're still in touch. It's almost like he has more credibility by, by putting his hands up and taking ownership of that interest in what, you know, what, what you were saying, Mary, can I, can I ask you, um, this if there is an opportunity in trust what other if, if you're able to tell us do you have any case studies or other clients you could tell us where they're developing trust through this space hmm. interesting i don't feel like anyone specifically focuses on this there was a telecom in new zealand that worked actually yeah um that's a good one um there was a telecom that i worked with in new zealand that were They'd recently changed ownership and they realized that they were not trusted at all in the market. Like they they were the worst despite being one of the biggest, um, wow. but the worst by reputation. So when I worked with them, we did a we did a huge amount of work just trying to understand what what it means to be trusted as a as a telco, as an internet provider. What what did they actually need? Where did they have the space to play? You know, the, the right to say things, the right to impinge in people's lives as, as all companies want to do. And um, we found that that actually just admitting to when things go wrong. So, so that worked really, really well for them. And their, their CEO is a very empathetic person and he's really not afraid of being human. So he will, um, he will say, yes, we made a big, big mistake and here is how we're fixing it and he'll also celebrate his team doing good things you know he invested heavily um 
off the back of our research, he invested heavily on on having support in place. So so increasing um, the call center staff, increasing mm. the, the the people that serve customers when everyone else is doing the opposite and reducing human contact. But what he did was um, was also making sure that the things like backend databases talk to each other so that when you call as a customer, you're not, you know, talking to 10 million people who are all accessing different <laughs> systems that hold information that is about you, the one person, because people don't see the internal structure of organizations. They call the organization. And I think that's often overlooked, just having like a joined CRM equivalent where, where you have information about the people. So you have the relationship with a person not that the person has a relationship with every single department of your organization. So, so there's, there's little things like actually listening to people. You know, what do they want? They want their telecoms to work. If it breaks, they don't necessarily want to call you. They just want you to fix it without even being aware of it. When they're calling you, they're already angry. Because <laughs> you mm. know what? They don't want to think about this. This is a utility. <laughs> so, 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 Yeah. No, God, Mary, that's great. I was going to ask David, you know, what <laughs> to to what do, to what degree does that resonate with Stonewater? I think it resonates with every single business. It's so easy as an organisation when you're immersed in your organisation to just design systems that suit the organisation. You've got to absolutely design systems that work from the customer's perspective, and therefore you must absolutely have the customer in mind, and you must have that input from the customer. And, and you can be using nudge techniques and, and wanting to move a customer to a particular way of working, but ultimately it's got to be designed from the customer's perspective. Our, we have a, our customer value proposition, or we call it our customer promises. We're proud to make it personal. If it matters to our customers, it matters to us. And we use both of those, uh, that, that personal element, and if it matters to our customers, it matters to us, as a way of thinking about the principles that we apply when we're looking at technology. If we are looking at technology, how can the individual personalise that service to suit their needs? Because I completely echo Maria's thoughts there, and that when, when an individual, when we as individual consumers are dealing with an organisation, nothing more frustrating than saying, oh, you need to speak to that department, you need to speak to this department. I don't care. My problem is with you as an organization. Yeah, yeah. I want you as an organization to fix it. I'm not going to be your admin person running around the business. And, and we as we as organizations must see that and we must design our systems that, that our customer has the very simplest possible journey. And that, that's not easy to do. No, it isn't. That is not at all easy to do, especially when you're in a, in a large organization where everyone is by necessity very focused on the department departmental um, sort of goals and not looking at the bigger picture. There's, there's a wonderful discipline called service design, which helps reframe organizational functions as services that go end to end. So they look at what happens for the customer, but also what happens internally. And whenever you apply that, you start seeing that from a customer's point of view, you're dealing with a very simple question. From an organizational point of view, that's not necessarily so. You, you might have several different departments all trying to do different things. So when, um, when I was working with a different housing, housing association um, in the past, we looked at vulnerability. And, and in essence, we were looking at, at their vulnerability um, policies. And what we ended up doing was creating 
a vulnerability work group where everyone just looks at the human because it's not you're not a vulnerable person as such but things in your life on certain occasions say you lose your job and you get ill at the same time that pushes you over say you're you know you're not necessarily vulnerable if you're over 75 but if you suddenly break a hip boom (laughs) you know so so what we what we got by by making these people look at at it on a human level was to understand that several of the different departments were working against each other. So one department who was trying to help them would be like, oh yes, we can do this, 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 that for you. And then another department who was in charge of finances would contact the customer and go, you need to pay now. And they weren't talking to each other. And just by getting internal departments to talk to each other about these people that whose very lives they were impacting, it, it made a difference. So, yeah, it's also about connecting the internal team. Mm. So just, Maria, just just on that, in this, you know, in, in this digital first world then, how can we use data, ethics, um, tech to actually improve the, the, the human-only interactions? I think, as I alluded to before, having a person view of the situation helps massively. So having good data helps, but also making sure that um, that you that you look at the whole data, that you're not looking mm. at bits of bits of information and making decisions based on incomplete information. So it's it still needs to be about communication. It still needs to be about talking. <laughs> both internally and externally and and not just jumping to conclusions based on the data so yeah. question what you know thank you so david it's stonewater how are you using um you know tech to free up time for people to have better um better personal interactions i mean what one of our sort of the work the sort of service design that we're having is that we're again from a customer-centric point of view, we're designing services so that the customer can self-help, self-serve in, in the first instance. If they then have a query that needs some advice that they can then um, speak, to an, speak to an individual. Uh, and that, and we've therefore, we've designed services so that um, we've, we've made services much more specific. So this may sound really strange, but we have people who are specialists in trees and we have people that are specialists in parking because that used to be um a great that, that's firstly from a business perspective that was a huge volume of calls that we used to get into our contact center but also it's just something that's a really it's a really low level but a frustrating element for our customers if you don't get it right it starts to escalate so what so what we then do is we'll then be able to pass be able to um, move that customer straight into a specialist who can help them with that service or if it's a more acute, particularly a particular, um, particularly acute problem, we'll then be able to deploy somebody um, on a face-to-face basis to deal with that particular customer's query. So our whole service design has been around looking at the the issue that the customer's got. Can they actually self-serve themselves, self-serve for that for themselves, mm. or do they, if they need to speak to an individual, making sure they get to speak to the right individual as quickly as possible, because that will resolve the issue quickly for the customer, and that is more efficient for us as an organisation. Mm. Um, I think I think that's interesting because a lot of organisations put up like 
walls and walls of FAQs and self-serve things, which aren't always designed well. But one of the things I've found, again, in research over the years, is if you, yes, give them the ability to self-serve, because most people want to do things for themselves. Mm. They don't necessarily want to call because it's a drain on, on their time. But give them an easy access so they have the backup or they can call at any time if they get stuck. So so allow them to self-serve, but also make it clear that it's easy to force. And I, I found over and over again that people are more likely to self-serve if they have the backup of always being able to call. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So that, yeah, so, so that they don't want to call you. <laughs> well, <I think laughs> they don't want to have those conversations. They I want to do it themselves. <laughs> I mean, supermarkets have got have got this quite well in the sense that there'll be there'll be self service tills, but there but yeah, but the more mature supermarkets have started to design services where actually they have checkouts particularly designed to chat to customers, uh, and and I think some of you know, some of our services will be designed particularly around social welfare because that will be an important part of of our of our, of our customers' um, sort of mental health is making sure that their their social welfare is protected. This is so important and it always gets missed out when designing technology. And I say always, but it, it's a secondary function of, of things like um, supermarket checkouts. That, that human connection where somebody might not have spoken to anyone, especially at the height of pandemic, we saw this a lot, where, where going to the shop was the only social interaction people had. And if you cut that out entirely, you're going to have to deal with a lot of very unwell people who are just missing that social interaction we're, we're social creatures mm. i mean even just uh, you know just for me just popping down to network rail southern rail you know jumping on the train we can buy tickets i can buy tickets online i can buy tickets through the machines but there is something about just a a quick chat with the you know the guard or the you know the the, the ticket person on the platform at six o'clock in the morning that just kind of puts a smile on your face it's not critical for me but it but it is just it's just a good morning and and even if it's just that is the train on time probably isn't if it's you know if it's southwest trains um but you know but you have a bit of a smile about it is is kind of what i'm saying so listen just bringing this um to a close let's try and answer this question then maria um can we use ethics as a tool for competitive advantage Potentially, it depends on what your goal is. Um, I I believe in this this day and age, we should be looking at collaboration rather than com- competition. And I feel like the best companies are ones that collaborate with the industry because every company, just as every individual, has something unique to bring to the table. And, and it doesn't have to be a cutthroat environment. So collaboration sits more easily within the the sort of ethical space and I, I feel like maybe we should be looking at that rather than competing wow maria that very very interesting david can i ask for your closing thoughts on this for me my closing thoughts are that technology has enormous potential to to drive business strategy and, and deliver business strategy but we are all humans our businesses are designed principally for humans. People trust people. You know, make sure that you keep your business human. David, thank you. Maria, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure having you both on the PJ Tips podcast discussing ethics as a competitive advantage. And this is me, PJ Stevens, um, wishing you both very well indeed. And thanks to our listeners. 
Goodbye. Right, let's turn that off and um, pop on.